coming tomorrow night, and we have within that 924, a day of promised blessing in the future, as well as the Festival of Lights, which begins on 925. So, that's not December 25, it's earlier than that, but a 925 on God's holy calendar. But we'll talk more about that later as it gets a little closer. I guess not a whole lot to announce. Uh, I did get a little more update on my daughter-in-law, Amanda, uh, and her paraplegic situation. She's making day-to-day pretty good improvement. She she was able to support herself 75% a couple days ago uh, sitting up and... Uh, just about two days ago, I guess it was, uh, Matt, her husband, came into the room there, and she said, I love you, and almost in her normal voice. So that was a huge improvement. I, I sent him a note, she'll be chattering like a magpie before long, after being silent all this time. And she also, as of just today, she... Uh, gained control of her bladder. So the feeding tube, she's beginning to swallow a little bit. The feeding tube will come out, and then the catheter will come out, uh, I think, today. So the tubes are being removed, and she's getting more and more control as time goes on. So I think God is working there with her. Uh, The medical people call her a one-percenter with the uh, injury she sustained, they say only about 1% recover from it. So uh, it's, it's remarkable progress, really, given that prognosis. I uh, just had a thought. I, uh, did you find a place to tether the horse out here today? You can put it in the trailer. I thought maybe you rode it over. Oh, you couldn't. Stay one more week. Oh, one more week. Well, I I can delay putting a hitching post out here a little while then. I wanted to be sure you're taken care of. By the way, Ivan and Christy have uh, Angel and Selena, son and daughter, here for a visit, and Al's daughter's here till Monday. So we have some visitors on the property which is nice. Okay. We were in Numbers 12 last week, and uh, I thought some more about this, and I want to go back there because I we need to see what was really going on. In one way, it's not as much as we might think. In another way, it was very, very important. And maybe to contrast this a little bit, Uh, this story of Miriam and uh, Aaron here, in comparison to Korah and Nathan and Abiram, or Dathan, and what the different motivations were, and understand what God was upset with here with Miriam and Aaron. Now, let's look at this again. Miriam Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Here was the problem laid out at the very beginning of this sequence. They spoke against him, uh, criticized him. Uh, 
said he was sinning, uh, all the above. They were not afraid to make a judgment uh, on what Moses had done. Now, he may or may not have sinned there. I think that possibly he did go against what God's instructions were. And that makes it even more imperative that we get this right and understand what the problem was. Because had Moses done something wrong, and apparently he did, because that's the way they saw it, and they made a judgment on that, but not only a judgment, but a condemnation of it. And they criticized him. I don't know whether they talked to anybody else other than themselves. It doesn't say. But their criticism, obviously, was at least between the two of them. Uh, They had criticized him. So that means that they were talking with each other about him. Okay? Whether or not they talked with others is beside the point. (coughs) Now, they said, has the eternal indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? Now, he had. Okay? He had spoken by them. Through Miriam's song after the Red Sea, uh, God spoke a message to Israel of hope and encouragement and faith and trust in God and thankfulness for deliverance. So he had spoken through Miriam very clearly uh, to the people of Israel in song. And Aaron, uh, even more so, because he's the one who did the actual speaking to Pharaoh and in various other places. He was the spokesman. Uh, God fed Moses what he wanted him to say, and Moses fed Aaron, who was the one who mouthed the words and actually did the talking in place of Moses, because God had had an issue with Moses. So Moses was not perfect. Uh, He had not accepted God's calling, He says, but wait, I'm weak in base. I can't do that. And God said, I don't care. I'm God, and I can do anything, and I can speak through you. I'm paraphrasing. And Moses objected again. And God lost patience with him and said, okay, I know your brother Aaron talks pretty good, so we'll use him as a spokesman. But he still had a relationship with Moses, and Moses was the key person that God was using, even though Moses of Aaron was speaking the words for him. So Moses entertained a very important position in God's mind and in God's administration during that day. Very important. But here were two people who were not afraid, being brother and sister, to criticize him and make a judgment, and God heard it. I don't know whether Moses heard it or not, but God makes a point here before he says anything. Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. 
So Moses did have a humble, meek attitude. He was a man of great power. Why? Because of himself? No. God gave him the power that he had. God gave him the knowledge that he had. God gave him the job to go do that he had. So it wasn't his own power and his own might and his greatness, as you might think. It was what God gave him. Now, he tells us the same thing in the New Testament. Meekness and humility, uh, poor in spirit, mournful, are attributes that God looks for. And he said very clearly that he does not take the mighty and noble people that are walking the earth, but he calls the weak and the base for a purpose, to show that by his power, by his spirit, things can be accomplished through people who could not do it on their own, would not have the capacity, the personality, the power, the might, anything they needed to accomplish, except God gave that. Now, he says the same thing of the primary leader, the major leader of the two witnesses even, Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal. So when we see Zerubbabel appear on the scene, he's not going to be a mighty man, a strong man, in that sense that people would normally give accolade to, He is going to be motivated, and the power that you see in him is going to come from God, not from him. Now, this is a lesson throughout the Bible, is it not? I'll get to Romans. We should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Now, herein lies the problem with Aaron and Miriam. Remember, even Christ himself said, A prophet has no honor in his own country, or even among his own kinsmen. And that Jesus himself could not do major miracles in Nazareth, because they said, oh, that's just that bastard from Nazareth. We know his parents, we know his family, we know the scandal, you know, So he said he healed a few sick folk, I think it says, but that's all he could do there because they lacked the belief and the faith and the trust and the confidence that God could work through Jesus Christ of Nazareth because they knew him. And they said, he's just a human being. Well, he was. But he was imbued by the power of God from the womb and the Spirit of God to obey God, to serve God, and to fulfill a purpose and a mission which he had been commissioned to do before the earth was ever even created and before man walked the earth. But they did not recognize that, so they were quick to criticize, quick to make a judgment. He can't be important. Now, we got the same situation back here. It comes up over and over through the Bible. They were his brother and sister. And they had grown up together. And they'd skinned their 
elbows and barked their chins together. And they had seen each other as children, and they probably fought among themselves with sibling rivalry and all kinds of things before they grew up and before Moses was called and before Aaron was said also, Hey, come here, Aaron. I got a job for you. I have one for Moses. Now I got one for you. You're to be the voice for Moses, as well as high priest. So Aaron did hold the second highest job in Israel at this time. He was the high priest, or would be soon. I didn't check the context, but he was very, very important in Israel. So holding that office and knowing Moses' humanness and then seeing something that he did that he had judged to be wrong, he was not afraid to criticize. I do not think Aaron and Miriam intended to try to take Moses' position. Okay? That's not what this sounds like. This just sounds like, oh, he sinned. And I saw him sin. Did you see him sin? So they criticized and made a judgment on Moses is all they did. Aaron knew what his job was, and she was already a prophetess, and she must have known that she couldn't be in Moses' position. You didn't, women in Israel didn't do that. See? So that's not the problem here. Let's not get this put in the same category as Korah, who rebelled against Moses and wanted to take over. It's a totally different matter. This is one that we'll read about a little further down in Matthew 5, where he says, don't judge. And he gives three degrees there of judgment. Somewhat mild criticism. Then it escalates to calling somebody a fool. And then it escalates to total condemnation of another person. And God says, don't do any of those three. Don't even go there. It's just a few verses down after he finishes this section that we're now on about the attitudes we're to have as Christians. Now, Aaron and Miriam came to have the attitude, we're just as important, we're human beings too, God has spoken through us. You might translate in today's parlance as, I have God's Spirit too. That's what people use today. I have God's Spirit. You may, but I do too. And therefore, I can say what I want, and I can do my own judgments. I can read the Bible, and if the doctrine disagrees with what the preacher's saying, I have that right. I have God's Spirit. Now do we? And does it confer that kind of authority upon us? Paul made it very clear that we can't learn without a preacher to tell us. And that that preacher has to come from God that he appoints. Not just anyone who says, I have God's Spirit, so my opinion is just as good as yours is. 
Now, that was the exact attitude that Miriam and Aaron had. Our opinion's just as good as yours. Now, what was God's reaction to that, and what is God's reaction today to the same thing? And we can find it several times in the New Testament. It's not too hard to do. So Moses was meek, but Aaron and Miriam began to think of themselves and their opinion more highly than they ought to think, contrary to Romans 12:3 and what Paul had to say there. Paul hadn't uttered that yet, but God was holding these two accountable for even criticizing Moses and making this judgment that he had sinned. Now, you think you can make that judgment. You do. Because you do it all the time. You criticize those whom God has put in authority. I got a note just recently from someone who says, well, you've been appointed as the leader of Anatoth. That's the extent of my authority, apparently. And yet that person is involved saying God appointed you to lead Anatoth. Said that. But is also party to a lawsuit to try to remove me from Anatoth. Now that to me is a contradiction. If God put me here, what right do you have to remove me? If God put me here to do that job, and this person thinks that, said so in the email. How, how do we get our minds so screwed up so easily to go against what even we say? It's really easy to criticize, isn't it? Because we think in our vanity, our ego, our self-righteousness, that my opinion is just as good, so I have a right to say. And you know what? We've been trained in that in this country from the time we were little kids. I have freedom. I have a right to say what I want to. The Constitution of the United States of America gives me freedom of speech. So we've been told all through school and all our lives, we can say anything we want to say. Now, what if God enters the picture? Do we still have a right to say anything we want to say? No. No. Assuredly not. God throughout the Bible, puts restrictions on what we can think and what we can say. He is the sovereign of the universe. He does not live by the United States Constitution. He didn't write it. It isn't Scripture. It's a pretty decent document for men. But it's not perfect by any means. Every word of God is more important than the U.S. Constitution. No, I'm not against the Constitution. Don't get me wrong. Don't make that judgment. I'm not against it. It's a pretty decent piece of work for men governing men. 
but it falls short of God governing men. So we don't have a right to say whatever we want to say. That's the first mistake, well, one of the first mistakes Satan made. <clears throat> My opinion is just as good as God's. I can criticize God. I've been around him now for billions of years or whatever. And I, you know, I, I kind of think sometimes my opinion's better than his. I think I could probably do better than he does. Who does he think he is? You ever hear those words? Who does he think he is? You ever say those words? <laughs> Oops, I better not push too hard here. I was just reading a couple of sermons by John Reitenbaugh about prophets. Very, very interesting series, a series of three. I've only gotten through two of them, but he goes into this thing about prophets, which is brought up right here by God. So I think it's a good place to interject it a little bit. God always gave a prophet a commission directly from him. I want you to go here and say this. Well, I'm just a fruit picker. No, Amos. You're a prophet now. Oh. Go say this to the Israelites. Yes, sir. He always did that, invariably. No exceptions that I see in here anywhere. God gave the commission. Now, that wasn't so with the priests. If you were a son of Levi, you had a certain right to the priesthood unless you were deformed or some kind of uh, difficulty that would preclude you being a priest. So a Levite man could be a priest and frequently was. But it was a matter of genealogy as a Levite. Now, God made the ministry in the New Testament not come just from the tribe of Levi, but opened it up to spiritual Israelites, spiritual Levites, you might say. Uh, and they can be from any tribe, or they can be from Gentiles. Doesn't matter in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, uh, it was by genealogy and qualification and in the New Testament, he gives qualifications, and men ordain ministers. I don't know of any minister who was ever in Worldwide Church of God, whom God came to and says, uh, I want you to be a local elder, or a preaching elder, or a pastor. I haven't heard of it. Doubt it ever happened. No, he was called up. And men decided that the fruits were there, just as Paul told Timothy, here's what you need to look for before you ordain somebody. So Timothy had the responsibility not to just lay hands on anybody, but to be sure they were qualified for the job, and then he called them up and laid hands on them and ordained them. And only the ministry had that authority to do. So, John made the point that the difference between prophet 
and priest or minister was that God sent the prophet to men with a message. The minister or priest went from men to God with a sacrifice, with a request for forgiveness and mercy upon the flock. So it's the same thing. We're trying to build a relationship with God so that man can become part of the kingdom of God. The ministry comes at it from men to God, where a prophet comes from God to men. Somewhat the same job, but from a different direction and in a different way. Because it's a direct message. And the ministry often was loved, and the prophets were almost invariably hated. Because their job was not to make people comfortable. The job of a prophet was to point out sin, the commandments of God, and make people uncomfortable who were breaking the law, and say, you need to repent. What did John the Baptist do? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Quit sinning. Well, he was a prophet sent from God to prepare the way from Christ for Christ with a specific message. And you'll notice with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, all of them, God came to them and said, here's what I want you to say, and here's who I want you to say it to. He always did that invariably. So it was from him. Now, when something's from God, that ought to make us kind of sit back and pay attention. Aaron and Miriam quit sitting back and paying attention to the things that God had used Moses to do. They quit paying attention to that and focused on him as a person and how he had made a sin in his life. And with that judgment, automatically comes an attitude. I'm as good as he is, and my attitude is as good as he is, and I have the Holy Spirit too, so who does he think he is? That's where they were. Just like the church came to be that way. I was around Herbert Armstrong. I knew him fairly well personally. I saw things in him that I thought were possibly not as godly as they might could be. He was a human being. But you know what? I tried to be very careful not to criticize him because I recognized God had set him on this earth and called him to be an apostle and a prophet, to the church. So I tried to be careful what I said. But there were others who weren't that careful. They decided that he had molested his daughters, and they decided he'd done this and that and the other thing. So they wrote whole books about his sins. You know what? I could care less. He had a message that God gave that needed to be preached. A calling of people into the truth of God needed to be done. So he used a man 
who wasn't mighty and noble. He wasn't a king. He wasn't a princess. He wasn't a president or prime minister. He was at the point, he was called a failing businessman. <laughs> In that sense, we can base. But God gave him the strength, the energy, the power to do a work in spite of himself. Now, if God called him to do that, who am I to make judgments about his life? I got nothing to stand on. I have sinned. How do I cast the first or the second or the third stone? People forget these scriptures. And they get them a whole bucket of rocks and start throwing them. And they devote their lives in some cases to destroying them. I have one right, man right here on this property that I have the email in there where he says, I am devoting my life to bringing you down. You know what? God could bring me down in a heartbeat. I could be sitting right here and just fall over. He has that kind of power. Now, this guy's been working with hate, anger, animosity for many years now, trying to get rid of me. Wants me to have a life sentence for murdering my wife. Wants me to have a whatever sentence for stealing a truck. And on and on it goes with other accusations. Why didn't he leave it in God's hands? Why live in hate and anger all the time? Who does that destroy? Me? Nah. Not a big bother. That's an irritation. We live with scorpions and thorns, Ezekiel says. They're not life-threatening. They're just irritating. Mosquito buzzing around your head, you know, it's irritating. So, these things happen in the New Testament church. It doesn't matter who it is. Herbert Armstrong or the lowest local elder or deacon somewhere. The people want to criticize. That's why he says, don't think on negative things. Philippians 4, 8, whatever's good, whatever's right, whatever's uplifting. That's the way we ought to think. And we quote it. Just as, just before we criticize somebody. <laughs> you know? Talking the talk doesn't mean a thing unless you walk the walk. Doesn't mean a thing. Moses was meek, and God made that point. And yet Miriam and Aaron, Aaron had become vain and self-righteous. And were making judgments on Moses, who was God's servant. Now, how did God react to that? It doesn't make any difference what you think or I think. What was God's reaction to that attitude? That's all that matters. He holds life and death in His hands. He makes all the judgments. He judges you and me. That's why He says don't judge each other. Don't, and it means condemn in the New Testament. Don't condemn each other. Well, they were in condemnation and criticism of Moses. We are not allowed that. Your freedom of speech ends where somebody else's 
life begins, says God. Now, he backed it up here. The Lord spoke suddenly to Moses. Wasn't a whole lot of uh, diplomacy here like the book of Philemon. Wasn't a whole lot of apology. Wasn't uh, diplomatic. He spoke suddenly. And to Aaron and Miriam. Now, he didn't come to visit them and sit down and have a drink and, and talk gently about what their problem was. No, there's a time. This is a grievous issue. This is an important issue in relationships between God and man and man and man. And God didn't mince any words. He didn't come and say, okay, you three, I love you all. Uh, let's sit down and talk about this thing. He called them on the carpet. He called them right to the front door of the tabernacle. Formal meeting. Not a nice, let's have coffee in your house meeting. Because to God, this was a great affront. Called them to the tabernacle of the congregation, and the three came out. They front and center. The Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. So the three were lined up, as I said last week, and he called two of them forward. Not the meek one, but the ones who had gotten self-righteous and condemnative and critical. They were the ones called up. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I the Eternal will make myself known to him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. This is the way I do it. And if it hasn't been done this way, it isn't right. It doesn't count. It's not valid. Now, he's making one exception to his normal way of doing it. And he's doing this to drive the point home to Miriam and Aaron. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all my house. God's house is the throne of God, the center of the universe, as it is today in the north. And in all his house. He says Moses is as faithful as they come. The 24 elders, the angels. That's God's house. So was the tabernacle. And he says he's faithful above all Israelites. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches or hard to be understood or interpreted or whatever. And the similitude of the eternal shall he behold. I will show myself to him, he says. It's not like it, he didn't, you didn't see him appearing that way to the other prophets. But he did to Moses. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? We should be afraid to speak against anyone whom God appoints to anything. 
Now, I'm not saying this for my benefit. I'm here to do a job. And this is an eternal judgment that God made. We need to be afraid of speaking evil against anyone God has put in a position. Whether it be child against parent, to stand up and rebel and make criticisms of parent, you need to react to that child the way God reacted to Miriam and Aaron. That's not allowed. You don't stand up on your hind legs and criticize your parents. Husbands and wives need to be very, very careful of criticizing each other. Now, God tells man he's the head of the house. But there in Ephesians, he also said, you treat that woman just like you treat your own flesh. You be as careful with her as you are with your finger in the door. You look after her. You encourage her. You support her. You do everything you can to make her happy and fulfilled. I've used the example before, and you've heard it, I'm sure, but I used to shave with a razor. And, uh, you know, once in a while I get a little careless with it. Boy, I'd have little cut marks on my neck or my face. Over time, I learned to shave carefully because I don't like to bleed. And I don't like the raw feeling that scraping the skin off leaves. So I learned to, to shave myself very carefully. Now, God expects us as men to treat our wives with the same kind of respect and carefulness that we treat ourselves. Her feelings, her needs, her desires, her wants, her welfare, her attitude, we have to be very careful of. But as men, hey, I'm in charge, I can do anything I want. Deal with it, woman. Kind of is the attitude. No, be tender, be gentle, be kind. Think of her. Think of her needs, think of her feelings. Think of her fulfillment. Is living with you something she cherishes because you treat her so lovingly and kindly and gently? Or does she get frustrated because her feelings and her wishes are maybe just not thought of? What you want is more important than what she wants. And God says, no, it can't be that way. You know what? If you don't treat her with kindness and tenderness and gentleness, there is going to come a time when she gets frustrated and she's going to begin to resent and she's not going to be what you thought she ought to be because she'll depart from it. She'll get tired of it. Eh, that's all right. I'm going to do this. It's what I want to do. No, treat her as your own flesh. 
physical relationship? Do you lead up to the main event with, I love you, and you're so sweet, and I and caress her, and stroke her, and love her? Slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, leaves you looking at the ceiling wondering, what was that all about? I don't feel very fulfilled. And he's turned over and gone to sleep within 15 to 30 seconds. No come down, no emotion, no feeling, no love, no kindness, no tenderness. No, what I'm trying to say is she needs to know she's cared for and loved. That's what she needs to know. And be treated that way so that she can feel that way. And if she's not, it frustrates her. And her life is more difficult. Make her life easier. That's God's instruction to husbands there in Ephesians 5. 5, I think it is. And it said also to the woman, respect your husband. Look to him as you would look to Christ. You know, that's tough for a woman to do when the man's acting to, like a selfish jerk. That's tough to do. Now, she's going to resent it. And it's going to frustrate her if she's not treated the right way in the right manner and criticized, and put down, it's going to be very, very difficult for her to look to you the way she would to Christ. And she'll begin to say, if Christ is like that, I don't know whether I want to be there or not. You know? These are living everyday difficulties that we all face in marriage. Because none of us are perfect. And we all have trouble living up to the standard that God set for husbands and wives. And when does a woman say, you're being selfish? I need this time. I need my sleep. I need this. When am I going to get it? So we all have a standard we have to live up to. I'm not trying to be popular. I'm just trying to tell you what God says. Like it or lump it. It's my job. It's what the book says I have to do. And people don't like it. I'm sorry. You start talking about child rearing. Oh boy, can they get upset about that because they read this and they read that and they have a mind too. And don't you tell me about spanking children. Or whatever. Just because God says it a few times over here. Now there's limits. And there's abuse. And there are other forms of discipline. Pounding on them isn't the only answer. But it's one that he says you better use. Plus others. God chastens us in many different ways, doesn't he? So we can do the same. But we had better be doing it. So that that child doesn't get to the point where he can say, yeah. that's, what Aaron, that's what Aaron and Miriam were doing. Well, Moses, you sinned. And we have a right to talk about it to each other. 
No, sorry. They didn't. Their freedom did not include Moses' space and Moses' relationship with God. The Constitution is limited by the Bible, by the Word of God. So just because you can scream about the Constitution, you live by every word of God, not by every word of the Constitution. Now, I am very upset with those who are doing away with the U.S. Constitution because it has been important in our history. So don't get me wrong. I'm just saying God's word is higher. So he said, I usually speak to prophets in dreams and visions. Moses, I speak mouth to mouth. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? If somebody is God's servant in whatever capacity, whatever capacity, if God called them, we'd better be careful. Now let's take this down to where it is. Well, so far we've been talking about prophets and ministers. What about deacons? Were they appointed to that office? Yeah, they were. Ordained to it. Can you say anything you want to about a deacon? Probably everybody here has. What about you and me, just as Christians? Have we not been called by the Father? No man can come except the Father draw him. So you and I have all been called by the Father. We've been appointed as candidates to be the bride of his Son. That is a much, much higher position than a prophet or an apostle. The bride of Christ himself? This is, this is small-time stuff here in Numbers 12 compared to what you and I have been called to by God the Father himself, individually. He called us to repentance. He called us to live by obedience to him. And he's called us to be the first fruits in his kingdom and be with Christ at his throne in the new Jerusalem and live with the Father and the Son throughout all eternity in a very high position as the wife of Emmanuel, God, with us. Why are we not afraid to criticize each other and to say things negative about each other? Don't you see how this applies? This is scary stuff. What does Jude say? I think verses 7 or 8, somewhere right in there. We turn back to Jude. I can get past John. Verse 7, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, queers, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these, he's talking 
to the church here about people in the church who didn't have a right attitude. These filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion or authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil himself, disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Eternal rebuke you. So even an archangel would not criticize Satan. That's Scripture. He feared to criticize the devil himself. He said, the eternal rebuke you. He called on a higher authority to deal with Satan. He was not going to try to deal with him on his own terms. Now, you and I try to do it. And he's talking about church members here. It says verse 12, there's spots in your feasts of love when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, not afraid to speak evil of somebody in a position, Clouds without water. (coughs) Clouds don't do you much good unless it rains. Carried about by wind, just here and there, doctrinally, personally. Trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. And then he even equates them to fallen angels or demons. Speaking of humans here who are acting the same way. We ought to tremble and fear to criticize one another because we are all dignitaries. Get it? We are all dignitaries. We're called by the Father Himself to be the bride of His own only Son. Queen of the universe. You don't get much higher than that. King of the universe, son of the king, bride of the son. It doesn't get any higher than that. We are made for a little while lower than the angels, and then we'll be put above them. Higher position. And yet, we're so flippant. We so easily criticize each other. Who do we think we are? We think we're as good as each other in our own judgment. We're better than because if I can criticize your sin, that puts me above you because I am in a position to make a judgment on you. That's self-righteousness. That's idolatry. Idolatry and witchcraft are the same. We need to get this. How often do we speak negatively of someone, whether it's a minister or just another member, or even one who may not be a member yet but is being called? If God the Father is calling them, what right do we have to criticize them? They belong to God. You know, it says in several places that we are the slaves of Christ. We're His children. We're His sons. 
He's our brother. Many times, he goes through and shows how important we are to God. We can base so we may be as human beings. We're important to God, and he's called us and chosen us, or is choosing us, to be part of his kingdom. We have no right whatever to ever criticize one another, put each other down. And we'll get to that a little bit further down in Matthew 5. But since it comes up about Moses being meek and them being self-righteous and self-important, that they had no fear to criticize Moses. So God makes it very clear, he's my servant. I will deal with Moses face to face. Get off it. Get off his back. And then he gave her leprosy, which would have killed her. It was a death sentence. Who interceded for Moses? He was meek. He didn't rise up in self-righteousness and say, Don't you know I'm God's prophet and apostle? No. He prayed for her. That's what we ought to do. Pray for each other. Not criticize each other. We're to grow together in love. Is what we're here to do. The anger of God was kindled against them. And he departed. And then she became white as with leprosy. Then they admitted they'd been foolish and sinned. And then Moses forgave and God forgave, and she was restored. She was made to sit outside camp for seven days, got a little slap on the wrist. But see, once the attitude changed, the slap on the wrist was enough. They got the point from God, and Aaron went on to be a good high priest. And Miriam went on to be a faithful member of the congregation of Israel. All we got to do, brethren, is get the point. That's all we got to do. Get the point. We're not to live in negativity. We're not to live in criticism of each other. Talk about each other. They were stabbing Moses in the back. They were his brother and sister. You know what? I, I suspect they loved Moses. I really do. They were siblings. They loved him. But that doesn't mean they didn't feel like they could criticize. Did I read all that in Jude? Said so they were not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. I won't turn back there. I'll just quote it. They, we should be afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. And every last one of us is a dignitary. So that brings it down to the very personal level of a member of God's church is above our criticism. We have no right. Now God will judge that. Korah was different. They were not Levites. They had not been spoken through by God. They were Reubenites. They had no right to the priesthood. 
And yet they came and confronted Moses and wanted to take over. Miriam and Aaron did not really want to take over. I want to see the contrast here. You read the story there of Korah and Abiram and that bunch. And they wanted Moses gone. They wanted to be in charge. Now Moses, I mean God, dealt very, very powerfully with that and swaddled them up in an earthquake. And 250 of the princes who were trying to follow them. See, there was an insurrection. There was a revolution. It wasn't just two people criticizing somebody because they'd made a mistake. That was an out-and-out rebellion. And 250 princes died with them. And then, the people, the next day, if you read on down, the people, the next day, says, well, Moses, you're the one that caused those guys to be swallowed up in the earthquake. So, they were agreeing with Korah. Took his side. So, this was a revolution. This was a coup d'etat. This was a takeover move. And God dealt with it very severely, and then he caused a plague to come upon them. And that plague would have gone through and killed an awful lot of them, and maybe all of them. Except for the intercession, I think it was Moses or Aaron, interceded, and then God removed the plague. So we're not talking about, with Miriam and Aaron, an insurrection. We're not talking about a coup d'etat or a revolution or a try to take over. We're dealing something with something very fundamental in human relationships. A brother-sister quarrel. But that brother had been called by God to do a specific job. They had been called to do a specific job. So, they thought more highly of themselves than they ought to think and were not afraid to criticize Moses. So when it comes down to you and me, it's the exact same principle. We need to be afraid, not flippantly, casually criticize one another. We can't go there. We're not supposed to go there. I don't have time today to go into all of this. Maybe next week, I don't know. But that's not what God wants us doing. And maybe that's enough of a lesson for today. Don't criticize each other. Don't condemn one another. Don't even attribute sin to each other. That's God's job. He chastens every son whom he loves. Now, he's got the same attitude toward you and me that he had toward Moses. Moses may be on a different level, a prophet on a different level, perhaps. But when it comes right down to it, you and I, as candidates for bride, are more important than any prophet of the past in the physical job or even spiritual job they were given to do. Now, they also are going to be in the kingdom of God. Some of them are listed in Hebrews 11 as such. So they were also candidates to the kingdom of God. And when Israel criticized Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and killed them, 
They were doing a great disservice to themselves and to the prophets. And Moses, brother and sister, were not allowed to get away with this. And those people who killed the prophets and killed the Christ himself are not going to get away with it. The Jews have suffered war and trouble ever since. And God conferred that on them. And Christ himself disfellowshipped them. That's pretty important when it comes down to salvation. Now, if they repent, they can be forgiven like anybody else. But there was a physical penalty put upon them that has come down through all the generations because of what they, as a race, as a people, as a religion, did to Christ. He was the greatest dignitary to ever walk the earth, and he was given the greatest shame and condemnation ever given on earth. That's major. And we helped kill him. Not just the Jews. Mankind as a whole is cursed to this day in our relationship with God. The whole of mankind, except a very few whom he's calling out here at the end to show who he is. That's all. The rest are under the curse of Adam and Eve and of killing Christ. I sinned. I still sin. So do you. And every sin is worthy of death. And if Christ's sacrifice is not applied for you and me, we will die. So who do we think we are to criticize somebody else and call them a sinner when we ourselves have sinned and do? We have no right. You are coming under a scary situation any time you criticize anyone who's been called of God. <coughs> God will deal with it in His way and in His time. And I pray with all my heart that He will show us mercy and love and forgiveness and grace. And that Christ's sacrifice will never end and will always be there for us. But we are called to repent and to overcome. And we need to do that. <coughs> Moses was meek and did not criticize Miriam and Aaron, even though they were wrong. God took care of the problem. Moses was his servant, and Moses answered to him. You are God's servant, and you answer to God. You do not answer to each other. Now, to some degree, he's placed a ministry to help you be what you ought to be. <coughs> I, because I hold an office, am no better than you. At all. But I have a job to do, and that is to point out to me and to you what our sins are been commissioned to do that. What you do about them is up to you. I cannot live your lives. I do not try to micromanage your lives. I basically leave you alone, don't I? 
for the most part. I don't come in your house and look around and say, you need to fix this and that. Don't do it. Don't try to micromanage you. I'm here (coughs) to read these words, every word of God, to expound them, to show you how it applies to you. You read there in Numbers 12. The Bible was written for you and me, right? Upon whom the ends of the world have come. So when we read Numbers 12, we need to bring it down to me. In my fear of criticizing a dignitary who is anybody who has the Spirit of God and has been called of God. That is a dignitary. We should fear to speak evil of one another. That's New Testament teaching. And we'll get down to it a little more, I'm sure. Because it's in Matthew 5. That's enough for today.